HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hey, Food Radio listeners. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie, and I'm really excited to share that we're launching a brand new show. Meat and 3 is HRN's weekly food news roundup. Tune in for a deep dive and three tasty shorts every Friday evening. It's 15 minutes, so you can listen while you wait for your pizza. This week, the fight for universal free lunch in New York City public schools isn't over yet. I'm overburdened. I'm overworked. I don't get staffed when people are out. Plus, Dana Cowan, former editor of Food & Wine magazine and host of HRN's Speaking Broadly, catches up with Valerie Lomas, the winner of The Great American Baking Show's Derailed Season 3. Discover how a Danish brewery is motivating people to get fit. And hear Alison Roman speak to the highs and lows of her cookie recipe going viral. Every time I see anyone in a social setting, that's generally the first thing they ask me is, how are the cookies? Be better informed and wildly inspired by the stories and people you hear on Meet and 3. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Today's theme is, is it extra virgin? Marketing and food can be divisive and insidious. We all want the best for ourselves and for our families, and it's easy to grab the cheapest or the best looking or the one with the most hype. It's a complicated landscape to navigate, organic, free-range, IPM, no hormones, antibiotic-free, natural, foraged, extra virgin, cold-pressed. There are a lot of terms out there and even more confusing names. Is it a toothfish or a Chilean sea bass? Does hanging a sign above the produce that says local make it taste better? What exactly does extra virgin mean? There's something in the use of a word that has so much meaning outside of food to describe one of the most important aspects of olive oil that I find fascinating. Maybe it's related to a heritage that prized virginity, or maybe it's about our religious purity. As in so many things, life, religion, food, 
It's no surprise that we're all told to buy extra virgin olive oil, only to come to find out what's in the bottle may not be what we think it is. For me, when I think about olive oil, I think about Italy and Italian food. You might not think about Japan when you think about olives, but I was lucky enough a few years ago to take a trip to Kagawa Prefecture in Japan. It's just west of Osaka. It's the smallest prefecture in Japan. And in 1908, the Japanese government imported a bunch of olive trees from California to see if they could grow them and create an industry. And they did. Uh, and it is a tiny production compared to somewhere like Italy or Spain or even California, but they're well known for their olives, and in a true Japanese fashion, they have a theory or a, a way of life called motainai. Uh, you may have heard about that on Japan Eats here on Heritage Radio, uh, Akiko's show. Uh, I'm sure she's covered that greatly, but motainai is this idea that the Japanese have a hatred of waste. So there was a beef farmer, a cattle farmer, back in the 80s who saw his neighbor in Kagawa who was raising olives and he went and he had his olives pressed for the oil and his neighbor was just composting all of this material, all the leftovers. And he thought, well, maybe the cows will eat it and I can take this and I can feed it to the cows and lower my feed costs and we'll see if the cows like it. Uh, turns out they do. And so now there is yet another associated uh, piece of agriculture with the olive production in Japan. It's the only place I know of in the world where they're doing this, but my guest may be able to shed some other light on it, where there's olive-fed Wagyu beef. Um, they're also, uh, I just learned recently, are, are also including it in fish food, in some fish farms, so in some uh, yellowtail amberjack. So, you know, perhaps that's something that other olive-producing areas can, can learn to, to do with the olives. My guest today is Nicholas Coleman. Uh, he was the olive oil specialist at Italy until last year for a long time. He helped open a number of stores and has trained thousands of people about uh, olive oil. He's an oleologist, and he's the co-founder of Grove and Vine, which is a full-service olive oil procurement company. Um, and they have a subscription, and they've just started doing wholesale. He'll talk a little more about that. He's an oil educator, and he really loves what he does. Uh, to say that he knows a thing or two about olive production would be a gross understatement. He seems to know thousands of things about it, and he's a certified olive oil taster and a member of the National Organization of Olive Oil Tasters, which has a really great acronym. It's ONAU, if you sound it out. Thanks, Nicholas, for joining me. It's a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, I had never, before I met you, I had never even, uh, I had never heard the term oleologist. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a, I mean, it is a wonderful word. Mm -hmm. And so tell me what, I mean, what is it to be an oleologist? How do you become one? Um, well, I lifted it from a man named Luigi Caricato in Italy. He coined the term oleologo. Um, and an enologo in Italian becomes an enologist in English, which is one who studies the grape and the vine. And so I kind of figured an oleologo must become an oleologist in <laughs> <Nice>. English. <laughs> uh, and it's someone who, uh, it's, it's different than like a olive oil sommelier, which I'm not thrilled about that term because yeah. a sommelier is one who pairs wines in a restaurant or sure. pairs oils in a restaurant. But really, an oleologist has to travel around the world and meet producers and understand the different harvesting and climactic conditions that they have to deal with and the extraction techniques and how that will affect the flavor profile. And there are hundreds of different olives out there, and you want to grow different olives in different microclimates so the olive can express itself during the, the available growing season so you get a balanced fruit at the moment of harvest. 
And unlike wine, where you can correct things in the aging process, olive oil is a fresh fruit juice. So everything building up to the harvest is a key component to the quality. And once the oil is extracted, the game is over. The oil only begins to die at that point. And after two years, olive oil becomes rancid. So freshness is a key component to quality. So for what I do as an oleologist, I travel around the world uh, consulting with producers and helping them create higher quality olive oil. And then we uh, find my favorite ones and import them. And we have a subscription where we get it to people all over the country. And I also do work with chefs and pair different oils with different dishes in the restaurants. So it's kind of a full circle approach. And I really don't consider myself an expert. I consider myself a student of the olive and I'm constantly learning about it. And that's what makes it so fascinating and interesting. So, uh, you know, when we, when we met, uh, I was really, I was, uh, excited by and overcome by your enthusiasm for the olive. I mean, I've always loved olives and I like them and I like olive oil and I know like a tiny little bit about that there are different varieties, but your, uh, your excitement and interest is, is infectious. So I definitely want to thank you for that. I want to encourage everybody. I think that Nicholas said something very important that after two years, your olive oil is rancid. Um, so if most, I, w- I would guess that some people who are listening may already know this and probably have really good olive oil at home that's nice and fresh. A lot of people may not. Um, is there anything that you can do with that two-year-old olive oil? Um, everything has a purpose. Um, <laughs> I, you can fix squeaky door hinges oh, with it good idea. and yeah. um, things like that. But um, no, you, it's really important to have fresh olive oil. It's like orange juice. The healthier the oranges are and the fresher you squeeze it and consume it, the better it is. So we, we, we really want to think about olive oil like a fresh beer. You want to just drink it up. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about it being juice because that was something that I was sort of, I had never thought about it that way until you described it that way. And it really is true. Um, how, I mean, do you have any, is there documentation of how humans first decided to juice olives, but only use the oil? Uh, Originally, many, many thousands of years ago, olive oil was used as a topical treatment originally for the body and putting it on the skin. And people would cover their bodies in the oil and the fat in the oil lifts any impurities off the skin. And they would skim that off and it would clean them, moisturize them, and then anything they infuse the oil with, it would function as a perfume. Uh So it's originally used that way. The olive is a stone fruit related to the peach and cherry and the plum. However, it's inedible off the tree. All the olives you eat have been cured. But olive oil, you actually take it right from the tree, and traditionally they would press it. Now they cold extract it to get to separate the oil from the water and the solids, the pits, skins, and pulp. Right. Um, so the question is, how did they originally start doing it? They must have originally just took put the olives on a rock and just pummeled it on yeah. a rock and the oil pooled together. And since the oil has a lighter density than water, the oil rises to the surface. It's very rare to find a fruit that has a very high oil content in it that you can extract raw. Right. Yeah. So it's like super alien in the world of fruits to have such a high oil content. Uh, As far as eating them, uh, one of the theories is that the olives grow near the sea and the olives fell into the salt water and naturally cured, and humans first started eating olives from the ground in the water mm. after they've been cured, because you can't just eat them can't off the tree. Them, right. So it's a, it's kind of lost in history, but there yeah. are many theories. Um, and the olive tree is itself, um, it is incredibly hardy, right? I mean, in, in places where it grows, it can burn, it can be cut down, and it will grow back. 
Yes, the olive tree needs very, very little to thrive, and it can thrive in places with almost no water, almost desert-like environments. And what's amazing about it is you have these trees that are thousands and thousands of years old. It's because the olive tree can regenerate itself from the pollens that grow directly from the roots, where new shoots will automatically start growing. So throughout history, when villages would get taken over and the land would get burned down, everything would be destroyed, and all of a sudden the olive tree would start growing again, and it was given this divine, almost holy significance because it could regenerate itself, which is also super rare in um, our world. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's talk about the the terms that come up around olive oil and buying olive oil. Um, you know, so I think the two biggest ones are extra virgin uh, and cold pressed. So can you speak a little bit to what those mean and how as a as a lay consumer, if you are looking at a wall of olive oil, I mean, you know, 30 years ago, if you went to the supermarket and, you know, there was olive oil, there might be one bottle, right? It was probably Italian. Uh, now you go to even, you know, I mean, most supermarkets you go and there's dozens of mm. olive oil. So how as a consumer do you navigate that? Okay, there are a few parts to this that I'm going to tap into. First one, when going into a selection, there's three things you want to look for on a bottle. The harvest date, the olive cultivar, and the specific estate or region that it comes from. You always want your oil fresh. So the harvest date should be recent. Um, right now in the spring of 2018, you want to look for oils that were harvested in the fall of 2017, because that is when they harvest in the Northern Hemisphere. When June, July rolls around, you can actually look for oils that were uh, extracted in the Southern Hemisphere, because they'll only be a month or two old because they harvest them now uh, in May. So you want to look for the harvest date. Then you want to know the olive cultivar. There are hundreds of different types of olives that are used to make oil. And if you don't know what olives are in the oil, you have no idea of what the flavor is going to be or what foods it might pair with. So that's a key component. It's like a bottle of wine. It has a year, it has a region, and it has a grape. If it just says red wine, you really can't make an educated purchase. (laughs) So you want to know the olive cultivars that are in it. And then you want to know the specific estate. It shouldn't just say packed in Italy. That actually means the oil is just bottled and shipped out of Italy, and oftentimes those oils are a cheap blend from Spain, Tunisia, Turkey, Greece, and uh, they buy the oil at the end of the year when it's kind of flat, and they just bottle it in Italy and ship it out. So you want it to come from a single estate or maybe a specific region. Is it from Sicily? Is it from Tuscany? Etc. Awesome. And then what does extra virgin mean? Okay, two more points that I need to touch on. Cold pressed, that is sort of an outdated term. Most producers cold extract the oil, where the olives run through a series of vacuums and centrifuges, and the olive paste is never exposed to oxygen. It's more sanitary. You can get sharper, stronger oil from more ripe fruit. And uh, most excellent producers cold extract their oil. So if you see that on a bottle, that's actually a good thing. A lot of people think unfiltered oil is better than filtered oil. But the whole idea with olive oil is you're separating the oil from the water and the solids. So the unfiltered oil just has micro and macroscopic particles of olive floating around in it. That's actually not good. That sediment will settle at the bottom. There's bits of water in it. The water will escape, and you'll get a defect in the oil over time called muddy sediment. So some of the best producers always filter their olive oil. And then extra virgin, what does that mean? There are two components that make an olive oil extra virgin. One is a sensory test, and the other is a chemical test in a laboratory. Only if an oil passes both tests can it be labeled extra virgin. In the sensory test, it must have zero defects. 
that's like a corked bottle of wine. It means something happened to the fruit before it was extracted or in the process that gives an off aroma. Sometimes the olives can lay, or the, the olive fly can lay its eggs in the olives and you end up pressing the maggot of the olive fly and you get a defect <laughs> called grubby. Other times the olives sit in giant piles and they undergo anaerobic fermentation before they're pressed. So they start to become edible. Uh, Almost, right? <laughs> they're really bad. And you get a defect called fusty. It's like a fermented smell. Um, it kind of smells like black olive tapenade. That's actually not good in extra virgin olive oil. and can't be extra virgin olive oil if it has that. Um, so there's all these ways it becomes defect. So only if there's no defects can it pass the sensory test. And then the chemical test, it must have a free acidity level of below 0.8%. A lot of the great olive oils, though, are well below that. They're below 0.2%. So if it passes the chemistry and the sensory, then it can legally be labeled extra virgin. However, a lot of the oils in America are fraudulently labeled extra virgin because 97% of the oil we consume is imported, and the United States is a non-member of the International Olive Council located in Madrid, Spain. So we're not really at the table when these decisions are made. We're the third largest consumer in the world, so we're like the dumping ground for all the unwanted oils from throughout the Mediterranean. So... Check those details on the bottles and make sure you're getting fresh oil. And if it ever smells like cured olives, that's actually not a good thing. Got it. Um, so Spain is, in fact, the largest producer of olive oil in the world. But as I said in my opening, and it's, I, I, I would guess may also be true, uh, I think a lot of people in the United States think of Italy and think of Italian food when we think of olive oil. Um, can you speak to speak to why why that's true? Is that marketing? Is it because the Italians use more in their food? I mean, the Spanish use plenty of olive oil. I mean, I know that. Mm. I just don't think of Spain when I think of olive oil. I think, uh, this is just my opinion, I think Italian gastronomy is uniquely wonderful for so many reasons. It's a long peninsula with multiple islands. You have an incredible diversity of cuisine. There really is no such thing as Italian cuisine. What you have is regional Italian cuisine. Sure. In addition to Italy as... Uh, they have a greater number of olive cultivars than any other country in the world, over 500 different olives. So you have the most amount of flavor profiles. You have this really interesting regional cuisine. And um, the Italians are also master marketers. And they were kind of marketing single estate Italian olive oil before any other country. Right. So that's why they kind of got a head start on that. Sure. Spain is the largest producer in the world, mainly because of this one region in Jaén, Spain, which is home of the largest human planted tree forest in the world, which consists of over 60 million olive trees. Most of those are Piqual olives and Arbequina olives, and those are typical Spanish cultivars that they actually don't grow in Italy. So Spain, a lot of like the bulk oil in the world that oftentimes isn't very good, uh, hails from Spain. That being said, Spain can make some world-class olive oil that is uh, bar none, as yeah. I say. Um, so, um... oh, one more thing. Oh, yeah. Um, to that point, no one country has a monopoly on quality. You can make high-quality extra virgin olive oil all over the world in northern and southern hemisphere. It really comes down to producer by producer. Have they planted the right cultivars in the right place? Are they harvesting at the perfect moment? Are they getting the olives from tree to mill in mint condition as quickly as possible? Are they extracting oil in sanitary environments at temperature controlled uh, temperatures? Uh, If they're doing all that, then you can make great oil all over the world. So I would, as my mentor taught me, be open to the world of olive oil. 
and taste and taste and taste and find the ones that you love and incorporate them into your life because having olive oil in your life on a daily basis is one of the easiest ways to improve your life all the time. I want to pull that out as like an ad for just like, I think you should, you should pull, we can pull that audio out and use that for Grove and Vine. I think that was a real, like, I, I feel this, I mean, I love olive oil and I use it on lots of things. I use it fresh. I cook with it. I fry in it. I mean, I do a lot of things with it. I've even used it topically, yeah. as you mentioned before, as a moisturizer. Um, and, you know, it is really, it, it also, you know, to me, you're speaking about the, the freshness of it and how important that is. And it's this connection to place. And there are, you know, there, there are a few we talk about in the modern kind of like uh, in, I guess, modern food and gastronomy conversations about this sense of place and about being connected to that through our food. Um, and olive oil is a very pure expression of that. When it's done right and yeah. from a specific region, <laughs> yes, yes. not blended from all different countries, yeah. you really do get the taste of place. Um, and it is so, so special. And these really fresh oils, they have hints of freshly cut grass and artichoke and arugula, and they're clean and dynamic and vibrant and bitter, which is also an attribute of quality. And then you get this, you might notice this peppery burn in the back of the throat. What causes that is oleocanthal, which is an antioxidant and phenol naturally found in the olive oil. And the more you feel that black pepper tingling sensation in the throat, the higher levels of oleocanthal are present in the oil. And that's actually also an attribute of quality. So as Jane Fonda says, go for the burn. On that note, we're going to take a short break and hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what led you down this path to oleologist. what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound? What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum. My guest today is Nicholas Coleman of Grove and Vine, and we've been talking about the ins and outs of the olive oil world. Uh, Nicholas is a, a uh, self-described oleologist, and uh, if you look at groveandvine.com, you can find out how to order his olive oils and uh, get on the subscription. He travels the world, both northern and southern hemisphere, to source direct the best olive oils in the world, essentially. Um, and, you know, so part of your process, Nicholas, as we were talking about before the show, is that you do all of your bottling here. 
Yes. In the United States. Yes. And I, I wanted to touch on why that's important. Um, my mentor taught me, my mentor, Nadia Gasparini Rossi from the town of Arezzo at the Villa Mulin Maria. Um, I'd been harvesting and pressing with her for nearly 10 years. And um, she's like my life coach in many ways. <laughs> and I love her very much. And uh, I owe a lot of my career to her. And she taught me at the very beginning, never trust anyone with your olive oil. And so when I go and I source oil for Grove and Vine, I tour a region and visit producers and taste from the master tanks and get a certain cultivar that I want from a certain hillside, or maybe I make a blend from two different ones, et cetera, but uh, always from the same producer. Um, I'll then leave with a sample, and then I'll have that producer airship that oil to us, and I check what they sent us to the sample I left with, and it should be identical. And then we bottle it here and then get it to our subscribers so it's a guarantee that it's the real mccoy of the one that i traveled for and selected if i had them bottle it and it came over bottled and sealed i really wouldn't know what was in what was inside that bottle and that is uh one of the reasons fraud happens yeah of course and and so you know i, I think it is it is important um you know to to understand that really you're talking about a great deal of trust um that goes in that that you know, they are trusting you that, and you're trusting them that they're going to ship you the real deal, but you're not paying them until you get it, um, which I think is a real interesting piece of the, of the puzzle. Um, we also spoke before the show about how the modern age of the internet and connectedness of the world and being able to be connected to other people instead of just like, you're not going to, you know, you're headed to the Southern Hemisphere next week, right? Yeah, I go to uh, Australia and New Zealand for fresh oil. And you're not going to like get off the plane and rent a car and just wander around looking for olive groves. You're able very easily easily, not super, but more, much more easily now than 20, 30 years ago to be connected to the right people when you get there. I was very lucky for um, a few years. I was a judge on the New York International Olive Oil Competition where I sat with 15 of the best olive oil tasters and experts in the world from about 13 different countries. So I got to, my, my network really grew and I got to be connected with um, experts and producers from all over the world. So when I go over there, I have certain producers that I'm looking to visit and I kind of know where I'm going. But then I also discover other producers just in that area that I, I check out. So it's a, it's a thrilling way to travel the world with a focus of fresh olive oil. You just let the olive be your guide. Yeah. Do you have a favorite cultivar? No, my mentor taught me to be open to the world of <laughs> olives and not to have a favorite cultivar. That being said, my favorite cultivar would depend on the dish. So since we eat olive oil with food, so you would use different oils for different dishes. So if it's like a pesto, I'd want a very delicate, light, sweet Ligurian olive oil that allows the pesto, pine nuts, and basil to take center stage. That allows the garlic pine nuts and basil to take center stage and the oil subsumes and doesn't overwhelm those things. But if it's a grilled seasoned steak or a rich soup, I'm going to want a grassy, peppery, vibrant oil sure. to cut through and brighten that dish up. And for that, I'd probably want like a Tuscan Frantoio oil or maybe a Pugliese Coratina oil that's really, really robust. So it depends on the dish. And, and do you use color at all to judge the olive oil? It's a great question. Color has no bearing on quality or flavor profile. It's all in the smell and taste. So when we analyze oils professionally, we'll put them in these dark blue glasses so you can't see the color because the color will have a psychological influence on you. So we only judge it by the smell and then the taste and then a combination of smell and taste. Hmm. Um, and so, I mean, you uh, you did not grow up uh, in an olive producing region. You're from New Jersey, uh, so it's not like you know this wasn't handed down through generations to you. What led you 
to the olive? Um, a few things. Um, when I was 19, I ate an artichoke and had a, a deathly allergic reaction to it. And I went into anaphylactic shock and I almost died. And I was rushed to the hospital. And the next morning I thought, well, what do I want to do while I'm still alive? And I applied to the Berklee College of Music in Boston and I got in and I went to music school. After I went to music school, I had a record label and it was 2006 and it was a hard, it was difficult to make money because everyone was downloading music for free. So I didn't know what to do. So I, uh, I took a trip from the Arctic Circle down to the Sahara Desert, visiting like Bach's grave and Mozart's birthplace and sort of realizing my music education in Europe for real and traveling and eating. And I did that for 100 days with a backpack, um, which led me to the town of Arezzo, where Guido Monaco is from. Guido Monaco invented written music notation, do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do, and the musical staff. So everything that I had studied was based on this man. Um, from Arezzo, who in the city center is a big statue of him. And sure enough, that is the town that I was introduced to, Nadia Gasparini-Rossi, who became my mentor. So it's like the history of music led me to this one place. And at that one place, there was the olive. And it completely transformed my life. And I was at like the center of some ancient, deep tradition that I just knew was powerful. And uh, I just wanted to continue down that road. Awesome. And do you still write music? I do. I have a little home recording studio and I, I record music, but uh, it's just for me and my friends. It's not, it's not really for the public. <laughs> awesome. Um, so I do want to, I do want to also make mention uh, that you have a, another website besides Grove and Vine that is oleologist.com. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if you're interested in finding out more information about Nicholas um, and about his writing about olives, any classes that he's teaching, um, things like that, you can check that out as well. Let's talk about tasting sure. olive oil. So, you know, I, I would imagine, I mean, you know, I would imagine folks that who are, who are not necessarily in the, the food and beverage world may not have ever sat down to taste olive oil specifically. Um, they probably pour it on salads or on finished greens or into a pan to cook an egg or saute some stuff. Um, you know, how do, how do you taste it and what are you thinking about doing physically? What are you, what are you doing when you taste olive oil? It's always important to taste olive oil independent of food to get the true flavor and viscosity and and all the nuances that come with it. Um, and the best way to do that is you can put it in a little shot glass if you have it, or you could do it in a spoon. And the idea is really if, if it's in like a little shot glass, you want to put the glass in the palm of your hand and cup it with the other hand and actually swirl the oil for about 30 seconds. Your bottom palm warms the oil and the top, top palm traps those aromas. Then you want to just smell the oil. If it smells like black olive tapenade, that's actually a defect. You do not have extra virgin olive oil. If it smells musty or dirty or anything like that, that's also not good. It should smell clean. It could have aromas of banana or almond or walnut. It can have aromas of freshly cut grass or arugula or or mint, things like that. Um, So then you just smell it and take your time with it. Then when you taste it, you put it in the front of your mouth and you do this method in Italian called strippaggio where you create a repetitive spray effect and the oil shoots back and hits all parts of the mouth cavity and that helps unlock the oil. I'll actually do it into this microphone just so you can hear it. It's kind of like a weird thing, but this is absolutely the correct way to taste it. And you spray it back a few times and then you stop and then you swallow. And that helps unlock all those aromas and you get all the nuances. So it's like this. 
then you stop and you swallow. It's actually a really good oil uh, from Japan. Thank you, Harry. This is yeah. really special. So I, I brought Nicholas a bottle of the of the oil that I uh, is made by the folks who I know in Japan. It was brought to me uh, earlier this year. It, it was harvested last fall in Japan, since Japan is in the northern hemisphere. Um, and uh, yeah, so I wanted Nicholas to taste really it. Really good. Freshly cut grass, hint of artichoke, slight bitterness, and that delayed peppery burn. Um, if you have to cough, that's okay. They talk about one cough, two cough, and three cough oils in terms of intensity. <laughs> Um, but you always want to taste it on its own because that will trigger ideas as to what the oil might pair with. Um, and then you can enjoy it with everything. But but if you only use olive oil just to cook with or in the food, then you're never really getting the nuance. And just yeah. like you want to taste a piece of cheese before you cook with it or things like that. I mean, you know, years ago, um, uh, you know, my eyes were open to the to thinking about olive oil in different ways. Um in a conversation that I had with Melissa Clark um, about a recipe that, that she was making. She did an event that I, I was helping her with at the Brooklyn Kitchen, and um, she made a dish that was sautéed Brussels sprouts, um, where you shave them really thin and sautéed them, and then she finished them with the same oil after. You know, so she sautéed them in oil, um, I think, with a, you know, with, with a little bit of, uh, there was lardons or bacon or something in there, but then after she put it on the plate, she finished it with the same oil, which is, was at room temperature. And we actually s- held some back and tasted them side by side. And just that little bit of the fresh oil that hadn't been heated and hadn't lost all of its aroma in that way, because um, a lot of those things are very volatile. And so when you heat them, a lot of the aroma disappears, was mind-blowing to me. And so that really opened my eyes to using olive oil more to finish food. And you talked earlier, Nicholas, about putting it on steak Um, and things like that. So I I definitely want, I think you should consider using olive oil more than just as a a vehicle for sautéing. It's the ultimate sauce. It goes with fish, pizza, pasta, steak, soup, salad, beans, everything, even desserts. And it's the first thing in the pan and it's the last thing on the dish. And when you cook with it, it it conducts the flavors of whatever you're cooking with and actually delivers those flavors into the food. Um, but when you use it separately to finish, the flavor is more separate and distinct, and you get all those herbaceous, vibrant, grassy notes that help brighten up the dish by using it raw. So don't be afraid to pour it on because it is a fresh fruit juice. It is high in antioxidants. Olive oil is healthy for you. <laughs> so do, don't don't be stingy with the oil. <laughs> but don't buy crappy oil. Yes, um, Is there? I mean, is there anything in cooking that you would suggest people don't do? Yeah, if you're going to wicked high temperatures, like wok-style cooking, where there's just a giant flame right on a very thin pan, um, it's not the best oil for that. There are other oils that have higher smoke points. However, extra virgin olive oil, the smoke point is around 400 degrees Fahrenheit, and you can fry at 365 degrees Fahrenheit. So it is incredibly versatile to cook with. And if you're trying to recreate Mediterranean cuisine, um, it really is the only... A lipid of choice yeah. to give an authentic representation of what Mediterranean cuisine is, which is based around substituting extra virgin olive oil in place of seed oils or animal fats. Yep, for sure, absolutely. Um, well, is there anything, Nicholas? Anything you have uh, you have coming up? I mean, as I already mentioned, people can go to groveandfine.com to sign up for your oil subscription. When is the next delivery? Um, so we're currently delivering, if you sign up right now, you'll get an oil from California, from this really great producer um, that I found um, called Frantoyo Grove in San Martin, California, and it's a monocultivar Frantoyo oil, 
and it's really, really top-notch that we offer. And then the next one will be shipped in July, and it will come from Australia, which I'm going there next week to source some really nice oil. And then the, the most exciting thing we have right now is we, we just launched Wholesale. Um, after traveling, after 10 years of traveling the almost the entire world for olive oil, um, I found the best oil at the best price in Chile, and we launched a wholesale line, and we're delivering to some really top restaurants in New York City. And uh, so if you own a restaurant, you're looking for some really good oil at an unbeatable price, um, I think I got the source. Awesome. So uh, just shoot us an email um, at info at groveandvine.com if you're interested, and we'll get you pricing and, and delivery and everything. Rad. Any, uh, any classes coming up that you're offering? Um, we're doing uh, an olive oil course at UC Davis. No, 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 at um, the International Culinary Center in California, in Campbell, California, um, September 10th to September 15th. And I'll be there teaching alongside my friend Carola Dummer from Chile and Antonio Lauro from Italy and Costas Liras from Greece and a few others. And uh, we teach this olive oil sensory course for five days and we taste over 100 oils from about 20 different countries from northern and southern hemisphere. And you learn about milling and harvesting technique and how that affects flavor quality and food pairings. And it's really like an in-depth uh, five-day olive oil course. Awesome. And uh, what about social media? Where can people find you on social media? Oh, you can find me at, I'm at Oleologist on like Instagram and stuff. On Facebook, it's just my name, Nicholas Coleman. And then um, we also have uh, on all those platforms, you can follow us at Grove and Vine, which we're currently building out because we're launching a new, a newly designed website in the next week. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on Feast Your Ears. Thanks for taking an interest in the olive. Yeah. Uh, so now I'm going to uh, leave everybody with a quick recipe segment. I'm going to start ending the show with recipes. So if you happen, if you end up making the recipe or you have comments and thoughts on it, let me know. Uh, but since spring is finally here and we were talking about olive oil and I wrote a book about vinegar, I'm going to talk briefly about how to make a great vinaigrette. Uh, someone asked me recently what the difference is between salad dressing and vinaigrette. Since they both have vinegar, uh, I replied that there was not really a functional difference. Really, it's about marketing. I know that obviously there are salad dressings which are not based on vinegar, but they all contain it one way or the other. Uh, I don't know if you remember them, but I remember the Hidden Valley Ranch commercials on TV going back into the 80s. Uh, but there are other kinds other than vinaigrette. But with the vinaigrette, it's super easy to make. So I would recommend that you look into and you think about making your own dressing. It can be as simple as some really great olive oil and then some kind of an acid <clears throat> to cut the fat a little bit. That can be lemon juice. My preferred, my preference is towards vinegar always. Um, but if you want to make a vinaigrette, my master ratio is one part vinegar to three parts good olive oil. And I like to add minced shallot, Dijon mustard, and some salt and freshly ground black pepper. Mix that up. Mix it well. It's a great project for your kids. If you have kids helping you in the kitchen, you can put all of that in a ball jar, seal it, and tell them to go shake it until they can't shake it anymore. That will help emulsify everything together and give you a really nice vinaigrette. So I hope you're going to make that and put it on some spring veggies. I put it on some asparagus on the grill yesterday. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears. Uh, I also want to encourage everybody. I have a big event that I'm working on coming up at the Brooklyn Kitchen the weekend of June 15, 16, 17. It's called Freak Flag Fest. It's music and art and food and film. Uh, you can check it out at freakflag.info. 
Thank you to David Tatashore for engineering this show, uh, as he does every week. You can find Feast Your Ears, as well as lots of other great shows, at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and zillions of other places where you can get podcasts. Please take a moment to like the show on any of those platforms, and you can reach out to me if you have questions, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com. You can follow me on social media at The Foodballer. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.